All right. Welcome. Thank you for attending our, uh, I believe this is the fourth in the series of Meet a Method. Um, today we are, so, sorry, let me back up a little bit. My name is Heather Berry. I am the division chair of the STR division. Um, this academic year, we started the series called Meet a Method. The idea behind the series was to focus on methods that are used by strategic management researchers and to really talk about the strengths, the limitations, the common pitfalls. And so we've got a couple that are actually on our YouTube channel in addition to on our STR homepage under the research tab that we've already recorded. And I would encourage you to visit. I think they've been great so far. Um, and today's session and then continues with that trend. Today's session is a little bit different though. So today we're not focusing on a method but today, I think we're focusing on something that is actually very important in terms of the fit across theory and methods. So it's not going to be quite as specific. And I think some of the comments that we're going to hear are probably going to be more personal and kind of idiosyncratic to the experiences of our distinguished panelists. Um, but I think this is a really important topic. And, you know, perhaps in some PhD programs, we don't do enough to really bring together the separate theory and empiric classes that we offer. And so I hope that this, this kind of fills that gap in terms of really talking about the importance of, of bringing that together. So um, I am replacing Tomas. Tomas deserves all of the credit for this. Um, Tomas is, is sick today. And so he is, he is uh, gonna watch this in full later, I'm sure. Um, but Tomas deserves the credit for this. So Tomas has brought together three panelists who are AEs at journals. So um, actually, let me share my screen. I don't have to do this from memory. So, all right. So we've got Maggie Jo, who is at the University of Michigan. She's an associate editor at SMJ. We've got David Tan, who's at the University of Washington. He's a senior editor at Organization Science. We've got Gurnita Singh, who's at the University of Minnesota. She's an associate editor at AMJ. And we're thrilled, you know, thank you, Tomash, for bringing these, these three people together. We're thrilled to hear sort of their comments and their insights. And then we're also going to have time for people to ask uh, questions to them. So um, the way this has been set up is each of the panelists have up to 20 minutes to make their remarks. Uh, if you have questions, please put them in the chat. I will be looking at the chat. If there's clarifying questions, I will interrupt so that someone can clarify something. Otherwise, we'll wait till the end of the three panelist discussions and open it up to chat. We do want to make this useful to you. So please use the chat function to ask questions as they come up. Um, at the end, if there's similar questions, I will clump them together and ask the panelists. Um, otherwise, I'll ask people to ask their own questions so that we can make this a useful session. All right, so that's our meta method today. Before I hand it off and before I start it, though, I would just like to highlight we've got an upcoming uh, meta method on using lab experiments in strategy research, strategic management research. Um, I guess the other thing I should note, and Tomas probably would have started with this, is Tomas did a survey of our members to ask which topics they were most interested in. And as you can see, these are some of the topics um, that were highly ranked by our STR members. Today's was actually the highest ranked in search of theory empirics fit. So I find I found that to be uh, interesting. And so uh, clearly there's a lot of interest um, in this topic. All right, so I'm gonna stop sharing.
And I'm now going to play the role of moderator and timekeeper. So I will stop you at 20 minutes because I want to make sure that we do have time for questions and answers at the end. Um, but you have up to 20 minutes. All right. So Maggie is going first. So Maggie, the time is yours. So please, uh, please put questions in chat. I will watch that. Um, and I will interrupt if there's a clarifying question. All right. Thank you. Okay, can you see my slides? Yeah, okay. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Um, I'm Maggie Joe. I'd like to first thank uh, the SDR division for putting together a very useful uh, series um, on research methods. Um, I think every one of us struggles with theory in Prisk match. So this is not a problem for just a few of us. It's actually, I think it's quite common. I think just a couple of weeks ago, I received a, you know, a re referee's report. And the, one of the comments made by the referees um, is that, you know, this paper is very well written in terms of theory, and it is also very well executed in terms of empirics. However, <laughs> you guys need to improve the match between theory and empirics. I think, you know, so this kind of comment um, we all uh, get sometimes. Um, so how do I approach this problem? So at University of Michigan, I actually teach a research master's PhD seminar. Uh, and for that seminar, I always start with, you know, research question theory before I go into empirics. Uh, so I think it is very important to start from uh, the theory. For that research methods, we spend a lot of time on how to identify and construct and motivate a sharp research question. And we cover many, many points about how to construct a good theory. But today, I'm not going to cover all those points about theory. I'm just going to list a few key points, which I think will help in our empirical design. So these points are one, you know, in terms of theory building, uh, you need to have a sharp research question. Uh, you need to know, you know, what gap you're fitting, you know, what, what, what gap in the literature you're fitting and what are the existing theories that are already there that might be relevant to your research question. You need to have very transparent and explicit assumptions and the boundary conditions about your theory, right? Uh, and I personally find, you know, both as an author, as a reviewer, as editor, uh, I think that's something we sometimes we don't pay enough attention to. We do have to keep asking ourselves, what are the exact assumptions that I'm using, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally in building up my theory? And we do need to pay attention to these assumptions and sometimes boundary conditions. You know, when would my theory not work? Um, the next, we need to have precise theoretical constructs. Sometimes I think for junior scholars, when they write a paper, they tend to write a research paper as a novel. They want to use different terms to describe the same thing because they think this makes the article more interesting. And I would advise against that. If you have used one uh, theoretical construct for one concept, then keep using that concept throughout the paper. Don't use different variations because you know, each variation might come with its own definition and then that will just make your theory less precise. Uh, and then you need to have a clear model uh, in terms of level analysis, sequence of decisions, um, and you do need to have linear and causal logic and you need to leverage formal models if you can. Um, so I think it is very important to think from whose perspective you're deriving the theory who are the decision makers in this 
model. Uh, what are the benefits and costs for this particular decision makers? If you are examining something that's more of an equilibrium nature, then you need to consider decisions made by maybe two parties, right? Each having their own um, cost and benefit analysis, and then how you're going to find a match in the end. Um, but you should avoid jumping from one to the other and not being clear what who the, re, uh, the real decision makers are. Uh, then you need to have falsifiable hypotheses. You need to have testable predictions against null. Uh, so I sometimes receive you know, uh, papers with such kind of hypotheses. You know, different environment is going to make firms make different decisions. That's a hypothesis. And that's almost impossible to fully test or to falsify but it's because it's so obviously true, right? Uh, and then lastly, you need to ensure internal consistency. Uh, you need to make sure all your hypotheses are based on a consistent set of assumptions. Uh, and then they are driven by the same set of mechanisms. Um, so your hypothesis, the assumptions you made for your H2 should not contradict the assumptions you made for H1, for example. And then to summarize, I'd like to quote Herb Simon, the purpose of science is to find a meaningful simplicity in the midst of disorderly complexity. How do we make a seemingly complex theory simple? Is to have consistent level analysis, consistent sequence of decision-making, linear logic, um, and then have consistent assumptions and mechanisms. So with that in mind, let's look at the empirical design. So the very first suggestion I would give to students, authors, and to myself uh, is never, never, never rush to regressions. So you know, once we get hold of the data, it's so natural and tempting for us just to go into the data and run regressions and then come up with, oh, beautiful, I have this you know, intuitive hypothesis in my mind, and then look, I find it in the data. No, never rush to regressions. Always go back to first make sure your theory is sound. And then you select context and data that ties closely to your research question. Sometimes your research questions or your theoretical constructs are so new, it is very difficult to find new data. But be creative in finding new use of old data sets. And then also, I think nowadays, you know, we have put so much emphasis on mechanisms. We need to look for granulate operational data instead of just, you know, CompuStat financial statement data. Uh, and then you need to refine your sample to exclude confounding factors to make sure that your empirical design takes into consideration of the boundary conditions of your theory. And then when you do that, you should select on the IDV rather than the DV. And then you need to ensure construct validity. Again, I would encourage you to take advantages uh, of methods developed in other disciplines, operations management, marketing, depends on what kind of theory uh, you're making. Uh, and then you need to have a clear set of causal relationships between the DVs and the IDVs. Uh, you need to broaden the scope of operationalization, leveraging micro-level decision problems. Um, and then you need to construct counterfactual and control groups. Uh, we probably have heard a lot about this from uh, the other uh, methods, uh, you know, webinars. And you need to, to the extent possible, leverage exogenous shocks. And then finally, you need to test the mechanisms that drive your theory. And one way to do that is to think, what are some of the additional predictions you can make uh, if your hypotheses are correct, right? If these hypotheses are correct, these other predictions must also be true. 
And then these predictions should not be true under alternative explanations. So then you should go ahead and test these additional um, you know, predictions. So that's kind of the basic uh, structure. Then I'm just going to share with you some of my personal experiences. So um, most of my work, especially my early work, uh, is about how complexity influences firm strategy and organizational design. So if you look at the complexity literature, um, especially around the time when I was doing my dissertation, you know, in the mid 2000s, um, there was a very strong literature, emerging literature uh, in theory about complexity, modularity, decomposability, and all the challenges they, pro they uh, impose on strategy and org design. But there were very little uh, empirical uh, studies. Most of the tests are done with case studies or uh, computer simulations, because we don't have too much data. So I remember back then, a lot of the tests would require the author has some, and the, of course the readers, to have some con context of specific knowledge, like the author would tell or convince the reader in, for this, you know, in this particular context, trust me, you know, product A is more complex than product B. And then this is, you know, I'm going to tell you why from my, you know, industry knowledge. And that makes the measure or the test less generalizable. So when I was doing my uh, dissertation, I was thinking, how do I operationalize these key concepts like complexity, modularity, decomposability, with some data and methods that can be applied, can be used by more scholars regardless of the context. So to do that, I need, I want, I went back to the original theory. What indeed are complexity and decomposability? and organizational structure, right? Which was empirically tested by, mostly by surveying people. So if you look at these two charts, those are the, you know, theoretical concepts we have in mind, right? So within firm, uh, firms, uh, you know, each firm performs tens, dozens, hundreds of tasks. And there are certain levels of in, uh, interdependencies uh, among some tasks, but not others. Now, how do I get data to mimic that? So at that time, I read um, papers by Professor Villalonga about, you know, how firms actually performs, you know, they actually operate in dozens of business sectors in terms of SIC codes, but they only report to CompuStat the one or two SIC codes in which they sell their final products. They actually do not report the SICs in which they make the intermediary products. And I said to myself, if I know what they are also doing in terms of intermediary products, then I kind of, I, I kind of, I can measure the interdependencies uh, of among the entire, you know, portfolio, right? Uh, so I took advantage of a data set, the directory of corporate affiliations. Uh, a lot of people have used that data set, but mostly to track the ultimate ownership or ultimate parent of a division, a subsidiary, or, um, you know, a department. Uh, when I looked into the data, I actually find that dataset reports also up to 29 SSA codes for each department division and subsidiary. So then within, if, you, if you look at the entire parent company, you can easily have a firm um, operating in dozens of segments. They just do not sell in each of these segments. Then I used the in industry input output table to construct a matrix, a task matrix, just like the one that's shown on the slide. So I think in that way, I can get a empirical match for the theory. It's not the perfect match, I must acknowledge, 
but it is the first time that I think someone used you know, a more general context, use more general data uh, to measure a uh, theoretical construct. Um, so as I said, that's not perfect. So later, as I move on, I moved from the first three papers that were published in my dissertation to the next two papers that are listed on the uh, title, in the title of the slide. So in this case, I uh, got hold of um, the entire um, uh, operational data sets within one bottling company. So this company has um, 50, more than 50 distribution channels, uh, sorry, uh, more than uh, 200, 200 to 300 distribution channels and more than 50 plants. And then each plant is shipping to multiple distribution channels. Each distribution channel is sourcing from multiple, multiple plants. So now you have a network, right? So within one company, I can construct a network of tasks and I can construct organizational structures. So this is look for granulated operational data, sometimes even within just a single company, but that really allows me to pin down the measure, the match between the theoretical constructs and the measure. And then you also need to refine your sample to exclude the confounding factors, like I said. So for the, you know, I think we have a tendency once we have the data, we want to use all of it. But sometimes it, it, it does require you to take a look at your theory and then try to exclude sample periods that are not feasible or not appropriate for your design. For example, in the second SMG, 2017 uh, SMG paper, I was looking at you know, organizational complexity. I have like five years of data, but in the middle, there was a shock in that the bottling plants, the bottling company was integrated by the parent company. So that was the subject of my first paper, SMJ 2017 paper, which was to, to study the impact of integration. But, this, but for the second paper, I intentionally excluded the periods when the company was under this change because I don't want to introduce shock to the environment, right, in the task environment. I want to keep everything steady for me to study um, the, the construct in the second paper. So that, um, I think that, you know, that's a, um, my experience to share. And then uh, to ensure construct validity, I did take advantage of methods developed in other disciplines. For example, for the two graphs on the left. So I, you know, remember I told you I collected data from DCA to construct a task matrix. Now I need to come up with the uh, key constructs in that paper, which is in those papers, which is one is about complexity, the other is uh, decomposability or modularity. So complexity is relatively easy. You just look at the intensity of the links in the network. Uh, modularity is not that easy. So again, if you look at the literature, um, most prior studies just tell you this is more modular, this is less modular by surveying the people in the business, right? Um, for a particular product. Again, I was trying to generalize this. So I looked into the network analysis literature and I looked, I read a Newman's work, right? And then he had this method using simulated annealing to uh, measure the decomposability or, mod or mod modularity of any network. So I used that for uh, in my dissertation to construct these measures. For the two later papers, I looked into the literature on operations management uh, because I was trying to get at the challenges of complexity uh, for coordination. So there could be incentive problems. There could be, and I was trying to make a story about information problem, but information, you could have information 
problem because of incentives, right? So one party does not share information with the other, or it could be just a not incentive problem. It's a pure coordination problem. One party is not able to communicate what he knows to the, to the other party. Uh, so this is actually thanks a lot to the to one of the reviewers to this paper. Uh, you know, I have in my data set the the forecast. Right, and I was using the forecast uh, bias to to say, you know, you see, coordination is causing a problem in terms of bias. The reviewer told me actually you can look at both bias and variance. So if one bottling plant is trying to, if the bottling plant does not have a strong incentive to sell one product line for the parent company, this bottling uh, plant would intentionally always bias the sales forecast upward or downward for a particular product type. But if it's a communication problem, then you should see variance instead of just bias. So that is very helpful in um, for me to really tease apart these different mechanisms. Uh, and because of data, I can you know, use you know, um, research in operations management, like I said, on stockouts, whether it's a problem in production or is a problem in delivery, is a problem in forecasting, or is a problem in keeping enough uh, inventories. So I would suggest we broaden our knowledge base and then read other disciplines in order to get at the mechanisms or the theoretical constructs that you are trying to uh, you're trying to test. Um, and then the last one is test mechanisms that drive your theory. Use additional testable in implications. For example, you know, following the prior uh, previous example I've given, I also look at you know bottling plants that are closer to the parent versus bottling plants that are further away from the uh, parent, right? So if it's a incentive problem, then after integration, the plants that are nearby are more likely to be supervised or monitored by the parent company. Therefore, you can see the forecast problem being somewhat addressed more compared to the further away um, plants. If it's a communication problem, uh, then the, you know the, you are going to have different predictions as to the the nearby plants versus the further away plants, right? Uh, the near way. Uh, plants can observe the parent firm's behavior to make more precise prediction, whereas the further away plants, they will not be able to observe even after they're integrated. Okay. Um, and then lastly, uh, you need to construct counterfactual and control groups. I know you have been through many other uh, panels on the same topic, so I will not go into details, but just to give you two examples. In this 2011 paper, we study hospitals, you know, response in terms of medical exp expenditure um, following lawsuits from patients for malpractice, right? So we have control groups. We are studying, we estimate the total medical expenditure per patient for the department that are vulnerable to these medical malpractice lawsuits. And then we have immediately would have two control groups. One is the non-vulnerable departments, right? Uh, the medical expenditure. And the other one is non-medical expenditure for vulnerable departments. So we are gonna compare to these control groups to test our theory. Another um, paper, uh, which is still a working paper, uh, in that paper, we uh, study, you know, how drivers going to, how Uber and the Lyft drivers are going to respond to the fact that the Lyft restricted driver access on its platform. So again, we have to think about what is the purpose of our est estimation. So our empirical goal is to estimate the effect of the focal platform, for example, Lyft's access restriction on other platforms that are shared multi-homing drivers 
with the focal platform. So multi-homing is the mechanism. Therefore, we can we think about the ideal counterfactual. Ideal counterfactual will be uh, to uh, an otherwise identical firm that one did not share multi-homing, two did not experience excess restriction or both. And it is so okay uh, that no such ideal counterfactual exists, right? We're not, we're not, we don't do lab experiments as much as we wish, right? So it is totally okay that we don't have ideal counterfactuals. However, we have to go through this thinking process and see if we can come up with some proxies. So in this paper, we use three counterfactuals that are close but not identical to the ideal counterfactual. I think your paper will go a long way if the reviewers and the editors see your effort trying to think through these hard problems and then think about the ideal and then at least come and then at least you know, exert some effort in trying to get to something that's close. So that's uh, all I'm going to say. Um, best luck. And I will be happy to answer any questions, of course. Thank you very much, Maggie. That was a great uh, introductory panel discussion there. So uh, what I'm hearing from you is really thorough understanding of theory, methods, and data to be able to accomplish any of what it is that you're talking about. I think that's great advice for everyone. All right, Gurnita, the floor is yours for 20 minutes. Okay, I'm, I'm next. Okay, uh, thank you uh, very much, uh, Heather and Tomas, uh, for organizing and for inviting me. And uh, you know, Maggie has already done a fantastic job um, walking us through some of the uh, do's and the don'ts. And also, she's taken a really close look at some of her papers, which I'm probably not going to do as much because I don't like to read my own papers as much. <laughs> so um, I will, however. Um, you know, uh, talk about uh, some of the common pitfalls. Uh, and what I liked, you know, most about the instructions that Tomash sent was that he, you know, wanted us to speak both from the perspective of an editor and as a researcher. So, you know, we're, um, even, even though we are in editorial roles, you know, we're also uh, doing the same kind of, um, going through the same kind of research hoops and, you know, undergoing the same kind of pains as many of you are. So, um, so, so, you know, uh, as an AMJ editor, uh, we do uh, organize uh, several workshops from time to time. And, um, you know, uh, some of the messages that I'm going to be relaying to you are going to be consistent with some of, you know, the thoughts that uh, AMJ editors as a collective have, uh, you know, shared at these workshops. So the first thing I'll say is that for a good uh, you know, research paper for a research paper to come through as an editor. Uh, when it when we when we are looking at a paper, we are looking at you know three things. One is um, uh, you know the study goals; uh, those should be clearly defined. Why is the study important? Uh, you know, what kind of research question are you hoping to address with it? What kind of uh, you know uh, knowledge uh, gap are you trying to address? How are you you know trying to address contradictions or whatever? You know, how is this study going to advance? our knowledge of a particular phenomena or a particular theory. Uh, and then, you know, there has to be some, uh, you know, contribution in terms of uh, the theoretical development. How are you actually 
uh, you know, making an advance. And that has to be, uh, you know, a strong and compelling part of uh, your study or your paper. And the third part is the method, right? The method has to be rigorous. It has to be, um, it has to be transparent. And I think there is a greater amount of uh, more than ever focus being placed on the uh, rigor and transparency of methods. And I think there is a high bar here. So these are definitely three elements of what makes a successful paper, but these are you know, by themselves, of course, necessary, but not sufficient conditions for a paper to go through. What is important is that these parts should fit together and you know, uh, help in making a compelling contribution and, and advancement in our knowledge of a particular theory or, uh, or a phenomena. And so, uh, so basically, you know, if, you're, if you're hunting ducks, um, try to point to the ducks because then you, know, you have a better chance of getting them. So, so this is basically just reiterating the point that uh, you know, Maggie was making earlier about the alignment between theory and empirics, uh, and of course the study goals. Sometimes the study goals you know, don't really match with what authors eventually land up doing. Uh, so I think that is kind of the first order, um, you know, condition uh, for 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 a paper to be successful. Um, now, of course, you know there are certain ways, certain um, you know uh, protocols that you could use to make this happen, to realize this uh, overall goal, and you know to help fit these three parts together. And here I'm borrowing from uh, one of uh, my co-editors at AMJ, Andrew Knight. As I said, you know we do a lot of these AMJ PDWs from time to time, and borrow from each other and try to keep our you know message consistent. So. So how do you achieve this kind of alignment between the theory and the empirics? So I think there are a few tricks, a few strategies that you could use. First is, I think, a visual mapping of your ideas uh, and you know, going back to the old-fashioned way of maybe, maybe boxes and arrows, which we don't see as much in papers anymore, but I think for your own clarity and for the and for increasing the clarity uh, of the reader it is helpful to use uh, you know more visuals i was recently doing a presentation and people you know actually liked the the boxes and arrows i hadn't used them in a very long time and people actually said this is so helpful because it gives us a, you know complete understanding of what you're trying to do uh, in a holistic way right in the beginning rather than you know have to wait for your results section to understand you know, what it is that you're trying to test. Now, as you are creating those maps and visualizations, I think it will also help you think about the appropriate levels of analysis and the mechanisms, uh, which I think that kind of understanding has to come first before you step into collecting the data. Oftentimes, you know, we have a context, we have a phenomena, there's, there's a, a data set that we are able to uh, assemble or, you know, get our hands on, we get really excited about it, but we have no idea, you know, what it is, what is, it, what is you know, what is the research arc here? What are the mechanisms that, you know, we are going to be uh, uh, testing? And oftentimes that creates the mismatch. So first plotting out the, uh, the relationships and doing it visually, understanding the mechanisms, and then collecting the data, I think, is a more effective strategy. Now, a lot of times we are doing process research, uh, you know, understanding the how of, you know, how things work. And I think that often requires more than just quantitative data. It requires a more qualitative understanding, uh, you know, a, a more granular type of data, which often requires going back to the field. Now, uh, as an example, 
uh, I was working uh, on a study regarding the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and this was perhaps one of the you know, first studies in strategy or management and trying to understand the workings of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund in terms of their international investments and so on. Um, and you know, one, of the, one of the comments I got from the reviewer and, and the editor was that you need more depth uh, to help explain the mechanisms and you know, to help kind of uh, explain uh, the theory. And I took it to a senior colleague and I said, what does this mean? I mean, I was still you know, a relatively junior scholar and, and he said, well, this means you need to go back to the field and talk to the people, talk to some of the portfolio managers. And the next thing I did was I applied for a you know, small grant, a travel grant, which I got from my associate dean. And it's amazing how people are willing to help you at times you know, when, when uh, you're trying to be you know, ambitious or uh, you know, traveling to Norway in, in the dead of winter. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. I, I, was, uh, I found myself in Norway in the month of November. And I was, uh, you know, interviewing people at uh, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and to my amazement, they were very happy to talk. Uh, and, and you know, uh, to my good fortune, the paper was eventually accepted and published in Organization Science. So, so I think sometimes, uh, you know, when your phenomena is new, when when you're trying to understand some of the processes, the mechanisms, going to the field, talking to people can really help in not only um, supplementing the quantitative data, you know, the CAN data, the secondary data, but also it can help you uh, understand better. Uh, the, the question uh, and, and the theory. Now, um, you know, the other thing I would say is that when it comes to the method section, uh, you know, there are some common pitfalls like, uh, you know, introducing new actors or missing certain actors that were introduced in the theory or, you know, uh, introducing certain constructs uh, or, or, you know, um, uh, a mismatch between the construct and the measure or a mismatch between timelines. And those are some, you know, common pitfalls, which, uh, you know, which you've also heard about uh, from Maggie. Um, now, of course, uh, also, as Maggie said, you know, there are no uh, perfect solutions to, uh, you know, there's no perfect paper to some of these, uh, you know, and, and no perfect way to do this. So there are obviously certain trade-offs that we all make. Uh, the important thing uh, for us as scholars, as research, is to uh, be, you know, very forthright about what our trade-offs are, what are, you know, some of the limitations. I mean, you know, what are what are some of the trade-offs that we are asking our readers to accept, and how might that change the interpretation of our findings? How might that change the boundary conditions of where our um, you know, work might apply and so on. So I think that, uh, you know, I, th I think following some of these steps can be quite helpful in, in uh, increasing the likelihood of a paper going through the hoops in the research process. Okay, now I'm going to, um, you know, speak a little bit. I, I thought it would be helpful to use an illustration uh, to just kind of start as a conversation starter uh, to think about some of the, you know, problems that uh, that people might encounter in uh, in you know trying to develop a hypothesis and test a hypothesis. The kind of you know uh, mismatch between theory and empirics that often uh, comes up. So, as an illustration, you know, uh, let's consider. Uh, 
a simple kind of relationship where you know a researcher hypothesizes that performance feedback will lead to phase out of products uh, at a firm. And that this relationship between performance feedback and product phase out is moderated by the organizational coordination mechanisms, so the extent to which the organization is coordinated or not. Now, you know, this is a relatively straightforward, I would say, you know, research question and, and a hypothesis. But you can, you know, going down these, these bullet points, you'll see that, you know, it, it raises a variety of questions, dilemmas, decisions that uh, the researcher has to make. So for instance, I think starting out, one could ask the question, is the relationship between performance feedback and product phase out linear or U-shaped? I mean, it could be that, you know, uh, performance feedback does nothing for a very long time. You know, companies, you know, just try to make the existing product better. And only after a particular threshold do you start seeing, you know, companies do something about it, right? Um, so it could be a linear or a U-shaped relationship. Um, should feedback only be affecting phase out of the product? Couldn't feedback also be affecting the organizational coordination itself, right? Uh, and vice versa, right? The extent to which there is coordination or the extent to which a company is changing its products could also have an effect on its performance feedback. Um, you know, the, the theory about coordination, uh, whether it is easier or harder to get rid of products, uh, that itself may not be very clear, right? Because coordination can increase hierarchy, which could you know, lead to more efficient decisions, but it could also lead to more um, you know, inertia and time delay. So the theory here may not be clear either. Now, depending on the industry, how do you operationalize product phase out? What makes sense? What is the right way to think about product phase out? If you're thinking about mobile phones, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, companies are not inventing new phones every year. They are essentially adding new features or making software upgrades to phones. Um, and so, you know, it really would depend upon how you're, uh, how you're, how, which industry you're, you know, in addressing this question in, in, in which context you're you know, addressing this question. Also, uh, the, the level of analysis, uh, as well as the, uh, the time uh, over which you're looking at uh, these uh, phase out, you know, uh, decision making uh, could be, you know, uh, could, could have an effect on your, uh, on your outcomes, right? Because, I mean, should you be looking at quarterly? Should you be looking at annual? Uh, there are a myriad ways in which you can measure performance feedback, right? You can do it based on uh, comparison to peers. If you're, you know, taking a behavioral perspective, you can, uh, you can do this looking at your own historical performance. You can do this in, in in a combination of ways. So, what's the right way to measure performance feedback? You know, why would you choose one versus the other? The same thing with coordination. Myriad ways of uh, measuring coordination within a firm. You could do it by looking at the company's org design, you know, the, the way the business units are organized. You could do it uh, looking at, you know, other kinds of informational and attentional uh, mechanisms and, and their flows. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, there could be, uh, th there could be uh, limitations to the external validity of your findings, depending upon the nature of competition in the industry, the market that you're studying and so on. So this is just to kind of give you uh, a sense of the plethora of 
different kinds of choices and decisions you're going to have to make to address a relatively simple uh, theoretical question about uh, the relationship between performance feedback and uh, company's uh, product uh, you know, phase out decision making. Um, now, in terms of my own research, um, so I'm going to, you know, speak about a, a working paper, and uh, this in this working paper, um, you know, we're we're trying to use a new method. But first, let me say, you know, what is the motivation? Now, uh, I've been interested in the question of industry evolution and new technology emergence, and it's in that spirit that I became interested in this question of the emergence of uh, retail health clinics uh, throughout the United States. Uh, retail health clinics actually started out in Minnesota with Minute Clinics uh, back in 2000, where uh, nurse practitioners uh, started to offer uh, some basic primary care to, uh, to consumers who would come into a CVS or a Walgreens or a Target. So, you know, as you're doing your groceries, you could also get your um, shots or you could get, you know, uh, checked up for some basic ailments like an ear infection or something to that extent. So, of course, there was a lot of pushback to this particular um, uh, approach to primary care services by the physicians, because the, the physicians had a jurisdiction over primary care and, and they didn't quite, you know, uh, like it that nurse practitioners were now going off and able to do it based on uh, the different um, licensing regimes across different states. So, uh, so in the period 2000 to 2008, what we observed was that, uh, you know, there was a heterogeneity in the extent to which retail clinics were proliferating across the United States. So you can see from the blue coloring, darker colors means more retail clinics and lighter colors means less retail clinics. Uh, some states had no retail clinics. Uh, a few years later, in 2013, what we observed was that some states that had retail clinics, like some of the states in the Pacific Northwest, you know, where Maggie is, they, you know, suddenly had no clinics. They, you know, the, the clinics just disappeared from, from these states. Whereas in certain other states where there were no clinics, you know, you actually started to see clinics. And so this kind of created a, a puzzle in, in our head, and I uh, teamed up with the um, uh, you know, this is the, the, the interesting story here is also how I found my co-authors. Of course, one of my co-authors was a doctoral student at the time who, who, who had worked in healthcare, but the other co-author of mine was uh, then uh, doing his PhD at MIT on this exact question of retail health clinics. Uh, he, you know, he was working on this question from uh, the standpoint of sociology of work. And so we started this collaboration um, to try to understand, uh, you know, what, how, which theory explains this pattern of um, the emergence and growth of retail clinics. And as we start, we delved into the literature, we realized that there is actually a very vast literature on new industry emergence, of course, you know, we know that. Uh, but that this literature has taken a variety of perspectives. There's an institutional uh, approach, there's an ecological approach. There are, you know, people who have looked at uh, this phenomena from a strategic aspect. Uh, and there is really no single theory that actually explains the observed processes that we were trying to understand. So this obviously created a dilemma. Should we, you know, just pick like with one theory uh, and try to run with that? Uh, should we try to embrace the different theoretical perspectives and try to kind of 
um, you know, somehow bring them all together. Um, and, you know, so that kind of uh, created a bit of a dilemma. And uh, as we looked around for appropriate methods, uh, we found that this emergent method of, um, you know, what, uh, what Pierre Fiss and some of, uh, you know, his co-authors and others have been uh, using uh, uh, called the qualitative comparative analysis or as you said qualitative comparative analysis actually provides us with a methodological tool which uh, which embraces the kind of theoretical uh, complexity as well as allows for equifinal pathways which is to say that not every state had the same path for the emergence of retail clinics and not uh, not every state had the same kind of path for why clinics appeared or disappeared. So this is kind of the idea of equifinality. And you know, this, uh, this approach we thought was appropriate, uh, but that said, you know, uh, I want to also highlight that it has not been easy for us uh, you know, using this method, because firstly, we are new to the method, and I, and I think second, the field is new to the method, and so there is some, uh, you know, th there is some disagreement, there is still some kind of emergence of, and ferment in terms of what this method is supposed to be used for. Is it supposed to be used for an abductive kind of study where, you know, you're trying to develop theory from the ground uh, and, of course, informed a little bit by, you know, what we already know? Or is this, uh, you know, a method that can be used for the classical kind of deductive approach where you do hypothesis testing? So I want to put the word, you know, of caution here that, uh, you know, I have used, you know, standard econometrics in uh, the vast majority of my papers, and that's what I do. But for this particular case, I thought that developing a configurational approach, using a configurational approach, which looks something like this, which looks very unfamiliar to many reviewers and editors, can be sometimes uh, you know, a double-edged sword. On the one hand, I think it's the right method, but on the other hand, I think we as you know, scholars, at least me personally, uh, you know, I may not be the most familiar with this method and you know, our field may not be familiar with, with, with the method, which then leads to this, you know, uh, I guess, paradox of um, using perhaps you know, the more known methods, the more familiar method, but perhaps the less uh, appropriate method sometimes to answer the kind of question that you're trying to answer. So I open it up as a question to everybody in terms of like, what should we be, you know, how should we be thinking about these dilemmas uh, as we uh, undertake you know, research and, and as we you know, want to address uh, causal complexity? as opposed to you know, uh, X leading to Y. So this is what you know, uh, FSQCA tables look like. I'm not gonna go into too much detail. I'll just you know, end by saying that um, you know, don't read my papers for a great example of how to do research. Uh, there, there are actually papers out there in AMJ and, and other uh, journals where you can actually see what a good, you know, these papers are award-winning papers, for example, uh, this particular one by uh, Henning Pizunka and uh, Linus Delander uh, is, is a paper that won an award um, or was a finalist for an award on innovation decision-making. I think they do a nice job in terms of mapping the theory to the empirics. So this is one example, if you're looking for a good example. Um, 
Another example of a process paper where they do a very nice mapping of the mechanisms, which I was mentioning, is a paper that I uh, was part of editing for the SMJ special issue on platforms. This is a paper by Garud and his co-authors on the emergence of Uber uh, across different states. This is, this is an SMJ special issue paper. And then uh, I think uh, there are, uh, you know, on the, on the issue of transparency, I think there, are, there is a lot that is being written. Most recently, there is uh, an editorial from the editors at AMJ on this particular topic of transparency for macro studies, which I would encourage you to read. And one of the studies that this uh, editorial talks about is, is a study that I edited at uh, AMJ, uh, which also I think does a very nice job. Uh, of um, you know describing uh, and being very transparent about their analytical st steps and so on. So these are just some examples of studies, and I think various journals and various societies are doing a great job in recognizing uh, you know such papers as exemplars, which you know we as a field can learn from. So thank you. Thank you very much, Gunita. So uh, very useful. Maybe we can all think a little bit about using new methods, using new data as we're trying to introduce that. Um, great examples. I'll see if I can find some of them and put them in the chat. Um, all right, David, you were having some issues. I think you left and then rejoined us. Uh, David, are you okay with your connection? Yeah, can you all hear me okay? Yeah, perfect. So sorry, that's why I went out of order. I saw David was having some issues. So, all right, David, the floor is yours. All right, so can everybody see my screen? Yes, okay, perfect. So I'm going to share an example from my personal journey with Theory Empirics Misfit when Tomas asked me to uh, participate in this session. I immediately thought I have the perfect example for this because this is what's something that I struggled with early on in my career. So essentially what I'm going to talk about is a personal example of what to do when you realize you have the study with questionable uh, Theory Empirics uh, Misfit. And no rocket science there. You have to either change the theory, you have to change the empirical context. If you really want to retain the data in the empirical context, you got to change the theory. If you're really interested in the theory, you got to pick a different empirical context. No matter which way you go, this is a, a costly thing to fix, but it has to be done. It's not worthwhile to try to plow forward and try to force fit something that uh, doesn't organically fit. And so one of the important takeaways from this example is that theory empirics misfit is a very, very costly thing to fix ex post. And so it's something that's better to get right ex ante before submission. Okay, so let me go way back to the very beginning of my career. And this was my job market paper. You will not find this anywhere because spoiler alert, it was never published in this form under the title. Okay, so the title of my job market paper was Status difference and escalation of disputes, patent litigation in a worldwide semiconductor industry. <clears throat> so as part of my dissertation data collection, I found this really interesting data, <clears throat> two interesting data sets that I want to bring together involving patent infringement litigation and semiconductor uh, products. So I had data on patent infringement lawsuits between semiconductor firms, and then I found this really, really difficult to collect, hand-collected data. This, was, this took years and years of my life. <clears throat> Product-level data on all integrated circuits produced by all semiconductor firms in the world between 84 and 2001. So there's more than 200,000 uh, products all collected by line by line by hand. <clears throat> and what was neat about this data set is that 
it was organized such that you could identify which competing products were what they call in the industry pin for pin replacements. Meaning you pull out one chip, you put in the other chip and often they're marketed using the exact same product codes. So competitors would mark these products as perfect substitutes for each other's products. So my empirical motivation, my empirical thinking about how to exploit this data set was that on the lawsuit side, lawsuit filings can be viewed as a window on failed bargaining because we know anecdotally, especially in the semiconductor industry, that a lot of these patent infringement disputes get privately settled before they ever enter the court system. So you never observe them. But we usually don't have any systematic data on the risk set of potential disputes if they don't enter into the court system. So I thought this product level data in the semiconductor industry serves as a strategic research site where we can use this pin for pin replacement feature of the data to construct a risk set counterfactuals of probable instances of patent infringement, including probable private settlements that we normally would not observe. And so my thinking was that this could give us a window on studying bargaining failure. Right. Okay, now watch how I take this potentially cool data set and waste it. <clears throat> All right, so this is what I did. During the last years of my PhD program, after I had started collecting the data, I also got, I have been interested since the first year of my PhD program in the sociological research on status. And uh, during one of those years, Roger Gould, um, preeminent sociologist, published this book posthumously, Collision of Wills, right? How Ambiguity About Social Rank Breeds Conflict. And I thought I got fascinated by this idea, this idea that status similarity is something that creates a risk of conflict. And his logic was that when there are large status differences between individuals, there are clear expectations about who should exhibit deference behavior to whom. And as a result, when there are small status differences, there's a greater risk that people will have competing expectations about who should exhibit deference to whom. And he shows evidence that this is a factor in murders, in blood feuds and vendettas. All right, so I got really, really excited about this idea. And so I thought, wow, I've got data on litigation. There's this interesting sociological theory about conflict. Let's see how I can bring those together. So how do I go from status, similarity, conflict and patent litigation? So this is what I did. Well, I knew that Joel Padoni has this paper out there where he claims that firms also have status. It's not just individuals but, and groups, but firms also have status. Moreover, its status can be measured by deference, how much deference firms receive. Toby Stewart, Joe Padoni's student, had this paper where he argued that a patent citation is a sign of deference to an invention. And so therefore more patent citations are a way to measure higher status. And so I thought, well, if firms have status, firms have patents, patents get patent citations. And so therefore you can measure status differences between firms using differences in patent citations. So therefore, hypothesis one, larger differences in patent citations contribute to a lower likelihood of patent litigation. All right, so that's how I've made this chain of connections between Roger Gould's work and my empirical context of patent litigation. All right, what is the problem here? Okay, this is an example, self-admitted example of very questionable theory empirics fit. Okay, why, why is this questionable? All right, let's walk through all the reasons that I've reflected deeply on in all my uh, self-reflection sessions uh, during the course attempting to publish this paper. First and foremost, before digging into anything else, 
this has poor face validity. Status as a construct is not something that has any real world meaning in this context. Status may have real world meaning in other contexts, but in the context of semiconductor industry and patent litigation, you will never hear semiconductor executives or patent lawyers talk about the word status or status difference, uh, let alone view it as a meaningful factor in patent litigation. When, when executives and their counsel meet into a room to decide whether or not to file a patent lawsuit, they don't walk into a meeting with the opposing side with the expectation that with a wrong glance or a you know, sign of disrespect in the meeting that that's gonna be the factor that determines whether they file this multi-million dollar, potential billion dollar lawsuit or not. The theory is taken far out of the original empirical context. So Google's original theory, the status-based theory of conflict was meant to explain first and foremost, interpersonal conflict, not inter-firm, inter-organizational conflict. And so the empirical examples that he used in his book, which I found fascinating, were violence among street gangs, vendettas in 19th century Corsica, very, very distant empirical context from patent litigation among semiconductor firms in the 20th century. And then in my own paper, the way that I attempted to bring these things together was based on connections that are often semantic in nature rather than fundamental in nature. So I'm oversimplifying, but essentially in my mind, what I was doing was, well, Gould's theory uses the word status and deference. Joel Bodoning also uses the word status and deference to describe firms. Toby Stewart also uses the word status and deference to describe patents. And so therefore, if my sample consists of firms, firms and patents, then firms in my sample can exhibit status and deference. This is an example of something that I often see as an editor, long indirect chains of steps to go from theoretical constructs to empirical measures. We can always construct these chains, but the longer and the more tenuous the chain, the weaker the theory and empirics fit. Well, I was able to find support for my hypotheses. I did in fact find that larger differences between firms patent citations is empirically associated with lower likelihoods of patent litigation. But it's almost surely not because of these theorized mechanisms. So almost surely not because large status differences influence expectations about who should exhibit deference to who. Right. Okay, so needless to say, this paper got rejected the first time and the first several times I sent it out. So what do I do? Okay, so this is where the costly next step comes from. You gotta either change the theory or change the empirical context. And in this case, I did both. So I wanted to do something with the data. And I also continue to be interested in status differences. And so I went two different directions. So one of those paths was to change the theory I used to explain patent litigation in the semiconductor industry. And that ultimately resulted in a paper about differences in media coverage and how the risk of negative publicity from litigation influences bargaining surplus. The other pathway that I took was to just study status in a different empirical context right, between law firms and mobility between law firms by employees. So I'm going to take a deep dive into the first example and only speak briefly about the second one. <clears throat> After I decided I need to move away from the status theory, I got, I read this article by Robert Burton, the economist, not the sociologist, that there's systematically systematic variation information about firms, right? There's more information about some firms than others because, for example, 
firms receive widely varying levels of information intermediary coverage. And I also got interested in these economic models of bargaining that are used to model settlement, litigation settlement. And the key economic intuition there is that there are joint gains from settlement if litigation would result in value destruction, not value transfer, value destruction, where losses on one side are not associated with equivalent gains on the opposing side. And I also collected additional data where I measured media coverage of firms, not patent citations. And so this resulted in a much more direct uh, connection between this theory and my empirical setting of patent litigation. So the key intuition that when there are joint gains from settlement, uh, there are joint gains from settlement if litigation would result in value destruction. So the more straightforward assumptions need to move from this theory to this empirical setting were that being sued for patent infringement leads to negative publicity for the defendant. And this is the kind of loss that doesn't translate into equivalent value gains for the plaintiff. And I reason that negative publicity is even greater when the defendant with low media coverage is sued by a plaintiff with high media coverage. And so that's how I ultimately arrived at this hypothesis that larger differences in firms' media coverage should be associated with larger joint gains from settlement and therefore a lower likelihood of litigation. So this is the version of the paper that ultimately got published in SMJ. <clears throat> And as compared to where I began with this, as better face validity, it draws on theory that was intended for this type of empirical phenomenon, as opposed to stretching from something that was in a completely different empirical context. And ultimately, it gives us more plausible micromechanisms behind the empirical results. The other pathway that I took with that original interest was I ended up studying status differences in a completely different empirical context, which is status differences between law firms. <clears throat> so Brian Lucy had this paper where he interviewed um, lawyers and he interviewed clients of law firms. And there's this really neat quote in his uh, study where an interview subject, this is a client in a firm, choosing among law firms. And the, the interview subject said, I can use a medium-sized firm in Kentucky and they're fine, but I think I'd like to be able to tell my directors that I got Baker and McKinsey, a high status firm. So right off the bat, this is a context where status, the concept of status, has better face validity. It's something that lawyers and clients explicitly care about and talk about. It's not just some interpretation imposed by us as researchers. And alongside that, we're able to collect empirical measures of status that have more meaning in this industry. So we use the vault prestige rankings of law firms. The very fact that this industry collects measures of law firm prestige and that this is looked at and publicized by firms that are in these rankings provides better faithfulness to studying the constant status in this industry. And we studied this outcome for which status has plausibly more um, impact, which is employees comparing their current and potential employers. And that resulted in a series of studies in work science and SMJ associated with looking at different aspects of status in law firms. So, some closing takeaways about the importance of theory and empirics fit. Check first and foremost, face validity. When I receive a paper, this is the very first thing that I look at because theory and empirics misfit is a very, very costly issue to fix ex post. And it's something that's probably feasibly not done within the r, &R process. So the first things I look at are face validity, right? Is it, 
is it something that should have first order importance in the empirical context? Avoid exporting theory far outside the empirical context. I know there's a lot of pressure for novelty and being interesting, but there is a trade-off. And this is a very, very costly problem to work your way out of if that's what you're sacrificing in order to try to achieve novelty and interestingness. And avoid doing what I did, which is making these very long indirect linkages in order to connect what you think is an interesting theoretical construct with an empirical context that may not fit it. So with that, uh, I'll close and uh, hope we have some time left for questions and answers. Thank you very much. So um, I really liked your personal story. Thank you for sharing that. And I really like the fact that it ended in three publications, at least in terms of you turning it around. And so I actually think that's a really great story because while you may not get through the journal for that particular paper, if it inspires you to regroup and really think very carefully about what you're doing, then the review process is working and it is helping you to craft much better papers. So thank you, David. I really appreciate um, what your, your comments there, what you said. All right, so there aren't a lot of questions in the chat. Um, maybe I can sort of start, there's one, and I'll get to that. I'll, I'll see if the person wants to ask that the person's still here. Um, but maybe I would start by just asking the panelists if they have any comments that they want to make after hearing the other uh, comments. Maggie, you went first. Sometimes it's nice to, if you had something you were thinking about. If not, there's, we don't need to. Um, I think I really uh, want to echo what Anita said about having box and arrows. And when you think about your theory, especially, I mean, at the early, at least at the early stage, I think box and arrows, I personally use it a lot. And I you know, ask, urge my students to use that. It's really to make our logic analysis, uh, you know, linear. And then I find that very helpful. Um, and I really like David's uh, personal experience. I think we, um, you know, that resonates with uh, some of my own experiences as well. No, perfect. All right. And so then I guess one other thing I would throw to each of you, since you're all associate editors, um, you know, I, I definitely see a lot of papers that that where there's a lot of pushback from reviewers in terms of like, what are you actually capturing? What should you be capturing? Is this the appropriate method? I mean, I think this is actually a really big problem with papers that are submitted certainly in the first round, but I also see it as a problem in subsequent rounds where if reviewers are really pushing authors to change the theory, that means you've got to change the empirics. And so like, just thinking through at different stages of review, are, do you have any other comments or insights or are you seeing similar types of things? I mean, I, I think the first round, absolutely, you know, it's, it's hard to get by, but in the second round, I think there's issues sometimes as well. And so authors really need to think very carefully as they're changing the theory or the empirics, like what, what they're actually doing and, and make sure that they have a coherent whole. So I, I was just wondering if you have, if any of you have comments on that. So uh, maybe you know I can I can uh, go first. So I think you're absolutely right, Heather. As we uh, respond to reviewers' comments and editors' comments, there are going to be changes to the theory, and that's going to you know inevitably lead to changes in the empirical uh, method. Uh, that said, oops, second. Um, I think you know many times reviewers or editors are not even going to get past the theory section, you know, if they're not convinced by 
the theory, right? So as, as uh, authors, we you know, try to put a lot of effort into making our empirics very sophisticated and you know, we put a lot of effort into uh, the empirics, but you know, it's all going to come to mix if people haven't really you know, gotten past the first five pages of what we are trying to say. I think often what makes or breaks the paper, and this is not a cliche, I think this is really true, um, is, is the first you know, few pages is the introduction and, and the theory development. And oftentimes as an editor, when I'm writing uh, my, my letter, I will say to the authors that, you know, your empirics are fine, but I, I will really have more to say about your empirics once you fix the theoretical issues, once you make clear your theory, because that will change the empirics entirely. So you're absolutely right. I think, um, uh, you know, the empirics are, you know, bound to change as theory changes, but um, I think it's really important to get the theory right uh, for people to actually go past page, you know, 20 and, you know, actually start reading uh, the empirics and appreciate them. David or Maggie, any comments? So I personally uh, would not change theory totally because I, I kind of view, I think most of us specialize in theory rather than specializing methods. Uh, I think many of us. Uh, so, uh, so for me, you know, there's this type of theory that I know a lot about. And if I were to change theory, I felt like I need a lot of training, a lot of reading. Um, and I need to say something that I'm not totally passionate about just because I have a data, I have to change my uh, theoretical investigation. Uh, that doesn't sound, sound too appealing to me. But I think we probably should also think of changing the theory, not as totally changing the theory to a different field or different school. Maybe changing the theory means you change the mechanisms, change the assumptions, changing, change the scope of still the same theory. You just need to have a better improved, more advanced version of your theory um, that you can test with your data. No, that's fair. And it is idiosyncratic to the paper, right? And it's idiosyncratic to what the reviewers are pushing. Sometimes it's a moderator. Sometimes it's a different um, theoretical lens. David? Yeah, I see um, Louise actually has a question in the chat, I think related to this point. Now, this is a conversation I find myself having commonly with PhD students especially as they are in that dissertation stage and they start, you know, oh, I mean, as somebody who did this as a PhD student, I got passionate about this data sort. I got passionate about this area of theory. And if I had somebody like me or like Luis kind of having that conversation and raising uh, awareness about this potential theory misfit down the road, what do you do? So, I think the question I, I think the question I ask PhD students in the situation is which is the one that you're really more passionate about, um, and so if you're really really passionate about theory and in line with what Maggie was suggesting, if you really invested a lot in theory and that's where you feel your confidence or where you want to build your confidence confidence going forward, then it may be worthwhile to consider the need to collect additional to collect new data with the idea that you're making a long-term investment in your career, that if you really want to be a status person going forward, you want to 
you know, be willing to make the investment in new data to support a future stream of research on status. And that's the stream of research. I, I didn't have any other research on semiconductors. That was my own one paper, but I had a stream of papers about status. And so that was the way it went. But I did have this data on the semiconductor industry. And so that's where I found myself having to, as Maggie suggested, learn new theory that I was not familiar with in order to find something that fit the data. And that ended up becoming a one-off paper. I didn't do anything else with the semiconductor industry or patent litigation with that. Um, and so that's a conversation using, I use this exact example when I have this conversation with my PhD students. No, perfect, thank you. All right, um, Thomas, you have something earlier in terms of effective way to include qualitative elements. And Maggie, I see that you responded to that a little bit, um, but Thomas, do you wanna ask that question? Sure. Uh, so first of all, thank you so much for um, for sharing your view. That was really, really interesting. I feel like my question is, I think it came from Vanita's point on adding depth to the empirics to, to support theory. And how do, how do you handle adding qualitative elements that support mechanisms that you can't really show quantitatively or to the level of detail that uh, predominantly econometric driven person would uh, like, it, given that it's a paper that's mostly uh, quantitative. So how do you, how do you in, insert qualitative aspects in that sense to match the theory and the mechanisms? I mean, I think, I think qualitative evidence can help in two ways. One is in terms of your theory building itself, right? As you're trying to develop your arguments, as you're trying to develop your hypothesis and think about the, the relationships, you can uh, be more um, grounded in the phenomena. You can be more connected to what is actually happening on the ground if you're already, you know, if you're talking to people. Um, who work in that area. As an example, I'm working on a, on a study regarding uh, the role of public-private alliances for developing uh, antibiotics for addressing antimicrobial resistance. And it's been really helpful for me to talk to people both in the public and the private sector in terms of what are some of the challenges and what are some of the problems that they, you know, and, and benefits. Uh, of collaboration across, uh, you know, public and private actors, and that really helps me think about, uh, you know, what are what are the right theoretical perspectives, what are some of the, uh, you know, right appropriate lenses to use in thinking about the problem, or even in terms of defining the problem. Am I asking the right question? I think uh, qualitative assessments can be very useful in that respect. I think in another uh, study, uh, you know, I'm looking at um, electric vehicles and uh, commercialization of electric vehicles. And one of the comments that I've got uh, from the reviewers is that, you know, the role of complements is really important naturally for the emergence of electric vehicles uh, and commercialization. And how do we capture that? Not, not all of the investments and complements are made um, public and you know, it's not possible for us to get data on exactly what firms are doing internally, uh, consistently across firms, across countries. So we, we are looking at qualitative evidence as a way to support some of our findings in that sense. You know, we're looking at 8K reports from General Motors and you know, we're looking at media reports to say, uh, look, 
you know, these companies are making in investments and complements, but they're doing it after they have already entered markets with electric vehicles rather than the other way around. So, so it also helps, uh, you know, in terms of uh, bolstering or adding, uh, you know, triangulating the empirical evidence becomes another way to, um, it becomes another method, so to speak. All right, so I don't see really other comments in the chat, so I would like to actually end the recording, but I would like to offer people the ability to ask questions without the recording on. So let me stop the recording. Uh, stop recording, there we go. So, uh, so for the recording purposes, I would like to say thank you very much to the panelists. I really, really appreciate their time, and I think they've offered some really great insights.